Hi everyone, I'm here with Fergus Beely, who is an award-winning conservationist and filmmaker. Hi Fergus, how are you? Very well, thank you Rose. We are um, socially distanced in Fergus's lovely house. Um, obviously, we've, we're recording this post-COVID, so um, this is actually the first face-to-face -face interview I've managed to do. Everyone else has been in Africa, and it's an absolute pleasure. And we're very, very fortunate to, to be able to hear Fergus talk about all of his amazing experiences through Africa and through the world, filming for BBC Natural History Unit and also lots of other amazing projects that you've done. Um, when I first started researching Fergus's career, I got a little bit overwhelmed about how much you've actually done. So I thought, should we start from the beginning? Your childhood and growing up, that must have been where your kind of passion for the wilderness and nature, all of that kind of came about. How, how, did, you, did you come from a family of, of people passionate about wildlife as well? Or? I, I would say I was probably the only one who was particularly interested uh, I, I have three brothers, and uh, the, the four of us spent a lot of time outside. But I would say that of the four of us, you know, certainly I have had a particular passion for natural history. And my mother has a recollection of me running around the garden, swinging a lure for a wild kestrel that was breeding in some elm trees. And I was convinced that this kestrel was going to fly down and land on the lure. But all afternoon, nothing happened. The kestrel just sat up in the tree because it was a wild one. But my mother, bless her, didn't have the, uh, I guess, the, the wish to put me off for life and so left me swinging this lure all afternoon <laughs> until tea time when I went in. So, um, I mean, that already shows um, the kind of perseverance that you must have had to have when you were filming wildlife in, the, you know, in these amazing parts of the world. Um, and then you ended up going to university where you did a particularly interesting thesis um, in Australia, I've read about. You have done your research. <laughs> you have done your research. Yes, I went to a very wild part of uh, the Northern Territory's border with Western Australia. And uh, it was a, a very special opportunity to join the Pitjantjatjara tribe. And at the time, it was a completely isolated uh, settlement and I guess what made it you know, particularly unusual was that I was the only white person allowed onto this dry reserve and I worked there for three months and came away with a very valuable reference from the elders mm. which was a thumbprint and this was presented to the BBC on my return. Uh, a, a couple of years later, when they asked for references, I thought, well, th this is this is one that I've got that's quite unusual. And I think they thought, when they saw the thumbprint, that this was, you know, exceptionally strange. And uh, and and I followed it up with the stories from the location and so on. And, and so I got my first job with the BBC, I think largely on the strength of that reference. God, that is incredible. That's definitely going to be the only reference they've ever seen like that. I'm not surprised they were impressed. I think they, they weren't necessarily impressed. They just thought, you know, we've got a really strange guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and so is that when, did you then work from the, for the BBC from that point onwards? I started with the BBC in 1987. And uh, I, I guess, you know, it was in, in the first instance, a great surprise for me to be working on a, a big series called Realms of the Russian Bear which took me all the way around the former Soviet Union. 
and I imagined that that uh, you know being dropped with one other person on the southern tip of Kamchatka in the snow uh, was the way every filming trip in in the <laughs> NHU ever happened. And it, oh, it wasn't until till some years later that I realised that most trips. Involves staying in, in quite luxurious lodges <laughs> in Africa and different parts of the world. You know, there I was camping in the middle of nowhere in some very, very remote locations in Siberia and Kamchatka and the deserts in, on the Afghan border and so on. And I just thought, well, this is, this is business as usual. This is what happens. But it was exceptional. And I, I now realize that it was, a, 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 I think, an opportunity for me to earn my spurs on the basis that, that most other uh, researchers, which I was at that stage, hadn't um, really kind of experienced such, uh, such wild places. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds extraordinary. Are there any other standout trips that you did in those early years when you were kind of starting as a researcher that, that really stick out? I, I think the Russian experience was the strongest, yeah. simply because there were times when it was really challenging. Yeah. The situation in the field was, was completely different to, to what I'd been led to believe was the case. Um, and so we had to think on our feet. Uh, we were filming bears in Kamchatka and on BBC World Service we heard that the Russian parliament had been stormed. Oh gosh. And um, there was all this action and we were slightly concerned that the helicopter that was meant to pick us up on my birthday, the 28th of July, never turned up. And this was, in fact, because all the Aeroflot helicopters were redeployed to the mainland because of the coup in, in Moscow. Oh, God. And so, I mean, we weren't that bothered because there were plenty of salmon to eat, <laughs> uh, which we were sharing with the bears, and there was no chance of starvation. And actually, the reality was that, you know, the southern tip of Kamchatka is further away from Moscow than London. Oh, really? So, yes. So, though the BBC were having a fit and thinking we should get these two guys out by boats from, from Japan or whatever, we, we, we were fine. I mean, there was nothing to worry about at all. We were just sort of, you know, slightly concerned that at some stage this helicopter was going to turn up and we probably wouldn't be ready for it when it did turn up. You'd be off fishing, catching salmon. Or... <laughs> yes, that's right. And there were so many salmon that they were up to your knees and you would wade through the streams trying to choose one that, that looked a colour as if it was going to be fairly good to eat. Because obviously with pretty much nothing to eat but salmon, there were some very red fish that oh were revolting. Gosh. And, uh, you know, even the bears were being quite selective. Really? Yeah, so you'd part them, you'd, you'd push the salmon aside and wait until you found one that was not silvery, but, but less red, and, uh, and grab it, and, and then it was you know, a little bit more tasty. Gosh, how interesting. I never knew that there were rivers where it would be that thick with salmon that you could do that. And so did you have any close encounters with the bears when you were on that trip? Not not often. Uh, at night you would hear them crunching on the gravels beside the lake, uh, and that was quite comforting because you knew that they were by the lake. But but we put the, the, the tents very close to each other, and occasionally... The gravels would go silent. You'd hear crunch, 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 and then it would suddenly stop. And then, of course, you knew that they were on the grass. And uh, getting closer. <laughs> getting closer. <laughs> yes. Um, so that was a little alarming. And I think the closest encounter I had frightened the bear as much as me because I had my trousers <laughs> down in the bushes. 
<laughs> and we were both very alarmed and we both kind of hopped in opposite directions at the same speed. So, oh. I, you know, I mean, the, the, there was no danger, although I think, you know, uh, mother bears and cubs would have been a worry. Yeah. And uh, and later in the summer, you know, you, you, you get bears that are trying to hibernate that are a problem. But, a bit grumpy. Yes, yeah. but, but none of the ones... Um, that I encountered were ever were were ever anything other than understanding, and they that we would we would go in different directions. Yeah, God, what an amazing experience! And so, if we just come on to um, planet Earth and the life of birds, and obviously you've worked with some amazing, amazing people, but um, lots of people are going to want to know about working with Attenborough, how it was for you. Was it kind of what everyone kind of imagines it to be, and and did you go to some amazing places filming those two series? Yes, I, I mean Planet Earth w- was a, a blockbuster, yeah, and um, it was, you know, necessary. I think at the time to make an environmental series yeah. that that followed the main series, and that was what I was put onto to to yeah. series produce something that would complement Planet Earth, and it was called Planet Earth: The Future, and it just looked at all the environmental issues. And at the time, it was it was quite eye opening because a lot of the subjects like climate change and so on were were really rising in, in the zeitgeist yeah. for the first time. Yeah, and it it did make it challenging because of course I had that contention as to how to balance a documentary and and whether one should have one or more scientists yeah. saying, well, actually, you, you know, there's dispute. Yeah, and that becomes a very big political issue uh, as to how we were still adamant that there wasn't enough science. Exciting thing done, simply because it was a chance to work with, with Sir David. And I realised how lucky I was at the time. I didn't take any trip for granted. And, and I was always aware of the fact that, that this was a fantastic privilege to be in the field with him. I, I guess, you know, what I learnt was probably more than anything, his time management. And I think uh, that has, has been something that, that uh, he passed on to me, to, to be aware of the fact that use of time, if carefully worked out, means one can be so much more productive. Mm. And spending 10 minutes learning a paragraph or an hour learning a side of A4 means that you know exactly how long to prepare for a shoot and how long to leave him with the lines. And, and likewise, you know, he would never let his head get cluttered with irrelevance mm. the night before a shoot. Uh, very it, professional. Very professional. And it made me realise that nine times out of ten, I've got nine things buzzing in my head. And, and most of them are just making a mess of it all. <laughs> I doubt it, but I know exactly what you mean. And whereas he really likes to focus, yeah, and he's always got time to come to supper and share time with the crew, yeah. But then quietly retreat to simply aim at the draft for chapter nine of of his book and do nothing else. Mm. And the last words to me would be, Fergus, what do you want me to come down to breakfast in tomorrow? You know, the same as yesterday, or the same as today, or whatever. And so it meant that he could go to write his chapter with no muddle in his head as to what lines he was to remember or whatever. Yeah. So that was that was a real lesson. Yeah, amazing to have picked that up. Um, 
And obviously Planet Earth, the future, went into a lot of detail with um, everything from, as you say, climate change to conservation, um, habitat loss. And did you come out of filming that feeling like um, we can change and we can do things positively and hopefully shape the future well? Or did you come out feeling slightly disheartened by the way the world was going in terms of wildlife and climate change? Well, it was an interesting time because... 2007, 2008, you know, I think there was, there was a, a, an awakening um, in, in the sense that particularly, you know, broadcasters had failed to deliver enough series like that that the audience really wanted to see and to know about. And I think that it, it sort of set a benchmark that audiences were interested and I think prior to that, there was the assumption that anything that was heading towards a, a sort of a, a, you know, a subject regarding the environment would fall on its face with what was called then green fatigue. You know, audiences would just switch off. They didn't want to hear about rainforests being cut down or pollution in rivers or whatever. But actually after Planet Earth the Future, you know, audiences became incredibly tuned and concerned and particularly younger generations, you know, and I was staggered as to how many people, particularly of sort of university age, were, were watching these kind of environmental series and, and showing real concern. And uh, I think that, that increasingly, you know, broadcasters realised that, that these issues had to be put into programmes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I often felt guilty that the programmes I was making, particularly over single species, just were not going anywhere near the subject of, uh, you know, threatened or endangered or vulnerable, uh, and and so many of the subjects regarding, you know, even even contentious subjects, population, climate change, etc. They just, you know, a lot of the broadcasters just didn't want to touch them. But mm -hmm. now, of course, you know, certainly since since Blue Planet Two, and. Um, the emergence of, of our concern for plastics in the oceans and so on, you know. I mean, these stories, which 12 years ago would, would not have really been issues at all, are now right at the front of the zeitgeist, mm. and that's fantastic. Uh, 1999, I did a live outside broadcast from there uh, for, for BBC and for Turner Broadcasting, and, and, you know, we drove a convoy of lorries out of Nairobi to Lake Bagoria and we set up a marquee and and had you know 40 camera screens in the tent and we had uh, remote cameras all the way around the lake three million flamingos I mean it was such a Amazing. such a treat to do that um, and and that first experience um, made me realize that actually there were so many programs that could come out of Lake Bagoria mm. I don't think other people had really uh, explored it as much as other lakes like uh, uh, Lake Magadi, Lake Naivasha, Lake uh, Natron, mm. you know, so many of the other solar lakes have kind of been, been covered but not not Begoria. Mm. And, and another kind of staggering sequence that, that came to light for me was that the olive baboons were hunting flamingos really? uh, right, right in the north under fig tree camp and and not even the warden was aware of this. You know, they were finding piles of feathers, 
but there wasn't enough evidence to say that it was the baboons. And we staked that out and we got some staggering footage. God, how for a film. Yeah, it was for a film that was on National Geographic. And subsequently the BBC went back to do a sequence for Life of Mammals. And, and it's been filmed many times since. Yeah. But, but for me, you know, being in the field and realising there was a whole new bit of behaviour that hadn't been filmed was really exciting. Yeah, that's quite satisfying when you can go to the rangers and say, do you know what's happening in your park? This amazing kind of wildlife phenomena. Um, out of all the places you've been in the world, what's been your top wildlife experience, the thing that's kind of um, humbled you and inspired you? It's a really hard question, that. I, I think that, you know, I do believe that the, the younger you are, the more of a sponge you are, to experiences and memories and so on. And so because of that, you know, my my early trips to Australia were incredibly powerful. And uh, I was lucky enough to spend time with a with a, with a family with a with a guy who was a wildlife artist in Victoria who really, you know, demonstrated to me the fact that um, you know, this was the most incredible country and we did our own trips into the Northern Territories and, you know, filled up the Ute with, with uh, uh, cool boxes and disappeared into the Grampian Mountains and found some really staggering wildlife. But I think a lot of, a lot of that is because of my age. You know, I was, I was, I don't know, 19, 20 or something and I was just soaking it all up. And I think as I've got older, you know, sometimes I've become just so blasé my head is so full of, of uh, kind of experiences that, that I sometimes just forget how lucky I am. And yet, you know, sometimes it does happen. You just, particularly with a place that you've been to a number of times over the years, you get an affinity for the people, particularly. You know, and again, at Begoria, you know, I just get so welcomed when I go back there. Yeah. And that's such a treat. It's so much part of the experience for me. Yeah, absolutely. You know, to be greeted by everyone in a way that, uh, that I've only been away for two weeks. In fact, it's been 10 years or 15 years. They all still remember me and I'm gobsmacked. Yeah. You know, and, and we, we um, kind of, I just have that lovely sense of belonging. Yeah. Which I'm sure you have in your own parts of Africa. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when, when, you, when, you, when you've travelled enough to get that sense of belonging, to a place it's not just an in and out but it's uh, you know been there a number of times it's particularly special very special um so obviously we've all just been through lockdown um if if apart from lake begoria if you and your family could go anywhere right now in the world you know on a flight where would you where would you go i think i would be tempted to go as far as northern ellesmere island in northern canada wow where, where you know, to me, the the expanse and and sense of wilderness is is greater than anywhere else I've ever encountered in the world. How amazing! Uh, I'm gonna have to get straight on Google because I don't know where that is. Well, it, no, it's not that easy to find, but it. But That's it, probably the bliss of it. <laughs> right. Yeah, and it's not easy to get to either. No. But but you know, I'm sure you've been to the Arctic. Something very strange happens to the light. And, and it's a bit like in a crystal clear sea where, you know, you can read a coin at 20, 30 metres when, when you're snorkelling. It's the same in the Arctic. The light means that you have no sense of distance. 
and and you look at a distant headland or you look across a, a section of sea ice and you see a bit of land and you think well that must be five kilometers maybe ten kilometers should I even think about you know taking the skidoo in that direction and you look on the map and you see it's over a hundred kilometers you know it's Ev everything is so far away that it looks as if you could touch it yeah and that's a brilliant sensation yeah um, and I think it means that you know you feel so much uh, part of the the, the the landscape and you feel so small and you hear the cracking of the icebergs and you think you know I, I just I would just be so crushed by one of those icebergs. You know, it sounds like a battle going on out yeah. there. And, and everything is, is kind of like unreal. And the wildlife doesn't pay any attention to you. You know, the Arctic hares bound up to your feet and say, who are you? What are you doing here? <laughs> the same with the Arctic foxes and the polar bears and the white, white wolves. And all these creatures are sort of saying, we haven't seen anyone here before. Yeah. What are you? Um, and it's, it's rare to be able to say, you know, that there's no chance that that white wolf has ever seen a person before. Yeah, very rare. I can't think I've heard of actually many other places that you, that, that happens. Sounds an amazing place. Do you think the girls would like it out there? No, <laughs> not at all. Um, that's amazing. And then... Um, just to finish, I'd like to hear all about your next project, which I, I know is very, very exciting. Well, we're shooting a trailer for a series which uh, we are pretty sure will be involving filming in the Congo with forest elephants and in the Amazon, in the Pantanal, with jaguars and with uh, mobula rays in the Sea of Cortez. And, and they're all challenges. And we're shooting a, tra a trailer at the moment, uh, which is involving, uh, I can't tell you too much about it, but when it comes on, on yeah. the screen, I'll let you know. And, uh, and I hope you might post a, a still of the, uh, of the trailer shoot that was going on yesterday. But all I can say is it's going to be very exciting. Yeah. We're using a lot of um, techniques which have never been used in filming before. Amazing. Uh, a, a lot of uh, silent manoeuvre electric skidoos and, uh, wow. you know, silent uh, paragliders and, uh, and bikes, electric bikes, which are silent. So we're, we're, we're able to, I guess, operate in, in a way that is taking wildlife filming another step um, where, you, you know, it's possible. Extraordinary. And, extraordinary. Uh, you know, it does take over your life. Yeah. And, and you just have to go with it and expect yeah. strange calls from, from the other side of the world <laughs> at, at difficult times of the night. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and answer them, you know, professionally. Yeah. And so it, just um, if, when you go out to the Congo, for instance, how long would you expect to be out there filming something like this? For this particular series, I would expect each trip to be about a month. Really? Yeah. yeah. And, and I think more than that, you know, everyone gets tired. Yeah. I think there's a point at which, certainly if you're doing sync, which is when you're filming people, you know, you, you just, you can condense the time. If, if we need to return for more specific natural history, we can get a camera out again for yeah. another few, few weeks. But, I, but four weeks for me is, is a good length. Yeah. Any, any more than that and people start getting tired. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, four weeks in the Congo, wow, and the Amazon, that will be absolutely amazing. I can't wait to see that when it comes out. 
Um, I think that has been amazing. So interesting. Thank you, Fergus. I well, love that. Thank you, Rose. Very, uh, it's an honour and, and a pleasure to talk to you.